Oh, good morning, everyone. If you would pray with me. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for this time to be able to worship you by song, by communion, by fellowship, by the word. May you orient our hearts, continue to orient our hearts toward you. We need you. We need to love you and adore you. Lord, I pray that you would give us all ears to hear the things that you are saying to us. Let your word be, be preached faithfully this morning. And that we would love you more as a result of hearing your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So late one evening, a couple weeks ago, I found myself engaged in a deep conversation regarding uh, foundational questions. Foundational questions are those questions that address the very core or foundation of human existence and experience. Questions about our origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Questions like, where did I come from? Who am I? Why is there so much adversity and pain? And is there any real meaning to life? Sorry. Every time I do this, somebody's internet wants to latch onto my iPad here. So this particular evening, the person I was speaking with was struggling with much of the suffering and injustice that real people undergo in this world. None of us need to look too far to see it. Poverty, infirmity, disability, disease, racism, slavery, abuse, oppression, exploitation, prejudice, rape, murder. One of the top grossing films of 2023 was about what is perhaps the worst of them all, child trafficking. These things aren't just in movies. All of these things are happening constantly all around us and all around the world. And the person I was talking to was rightly appalled at all of it. And so they were asking the difficult questions about meaning and purpose and all of those things. And so after listening to this person pour out their heart, I, I agreed with them that I too felt that these are indeed horrific and heartbreaking tragedies. And then I asked them why they thought these things were tragic and horrific. It seems to me, I, I said to them, that you believe people are valuable, that, that human beings have some kind of intrinsic value and dignity. And that's what makes injustice and suffering bad. Well, they agreed, and so I continued. So where did you get that from? I mean, it's a great sentiment and all, but is it more than just a sentiment? 
a feeling of yours. Is there any foundation, any truth to that sentiment that people are really valuable? And if so, where did they derive that value and dignity from? What is the foundation of these concepts of dignity, equality, justice, morality, and meaning as they relate to human beings? Have you guys ever struggled with questions like these? Do you struggle with questions like these? Why do I exist? What's my purpose? Are all people really equal in dignity, regardless of ethnicity or, or gender, nationality, class, shade, size, shape, stage, or social status? And are these concepts real? Or are they just sentiments of ours? Are we just making them up? Do you know the answers to these questions? And do you know how to answer these questions for the people you're talking to who don't? Well, the answers to these foundational questions are firmly rooted in the book of Genesis. That's why Dr. Lyle opened with a message about the importance of Genesis and of interpreting Genesis correctly. He made it clear that Genesis is important because the truths contained in it form the foundation of virtually every Christian truth, every truth of reality, and the answers to these questions about human existence and experience. If you remember the stones picture that he put up, it had rocks. Are the stones up? Stones. Oh, there they are. He had the, the pictures uh, with the stones that are meaning of life, ethical standards, marriage, and law, and, and there's much, much more. They're all based on the truths revealed in Genesis. That's why, as a church, we are using the theme of foundations for the book of Genesis. Because, among other things, we'll see in Genesis the foundations of the heavens and the earth, of humanity and Adam and Eve, of sin, suffering, and death at the fall, of grace through substitutionary atonement, of redemption promised and its fulfillment begun, of judgment and salvation and Noah, of the multitude of ethnicities and nationalities in Babel, of the covenant of grace through faith in the life of Abraham, of the nation of Israel through Jacob, and of the hope of deliverance through Joseph. Well, there are some pretty important doctrines, aren't they? Foundational, wouldn't you say? Yes. Amid these passages, we'll also discover how Genesis is foundational in understanding connectedness, our theme for this year. Our connectedness to Christ. Boy, that's a hard word to say. You guys find connectedness. Connectedness, connectedness, connectedness. No. Our connectedness to Christ, our connectedness to community, the connectedness of Christ to community, and why we need to connect our community to Christ. So this morning, our passage is Genesis 1-1 through 2-4, which describes the origin and foundation of everything, with a special emphasis on mankind. This chapter, in particularly verses 26 through 31, reveals not only our origin, the origin of mankind, but also the basis, the foundation of human dignity and meaning. 
which form the only justifiable basis for human rights. We won't get to the human rights part yet. That's in a couple weeks. But it's this that forms that basis. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This morning, the truth that I want you to leave here with is that since you're created in the image of God, your worth is rooted in his image and your purpose is to reflect that image. Since you're created in the image of God, your worth is rooted in his image and your purpose is to reflect that image. This is my and your and everyone else's true identity. Whether we recognize it or not, it's how and why God created us and the answer to many of these difficult foundational questions. So I want to give you three points to help flesh this out. Number one, God created us and everything else. Two, God created us specially or uniquely in his image. And three, God created us to reflect his image. Those will come up later, so you don't have to try to get them all written out right now. Number one, God created us and everything else. So let's begin at the beginning, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning. So this describes the moment when time itself began. Now, we could ask, what, what was the previous, what was, what was going on previous to this moment? What was there previous to this moment? But it would literally be an impossible question to answer because there was no previous moment. For there was no time, nor space, nor matter, no universe. Now, outside of time, there was one and only one, God. Three immaterial persons of the triune Godhead existing in perfect, timeless community. That was it. Nothing else. Now, I'd ask you to imagine nothing, but then you would imagine something. So, we won't go there. Nothing. And then, God created the heavens and the earth. Nothing. Let there be. Everything. Talk about a big bang. Time begins. <laughs> Time, isn't that cool? That's a cool concept. Time begins. Space becomes. Matter is born. From nothing. He didn't fashion creation out of pre-existing materials. It's not like he was a sculptor that took a bunch of unformed clay and sculpted this glorious universe. 
No, there, there was no clay, no cells, no atoms or subatomic particles, no quarks or strings or protons, neutrons, and electrons. There wasn't even a canvas of space on which to create. And then he spoke space. He spoke the canvas. And he spoke time. And he spoke matter into existence out of nothing. Behold the power of God. Unimaginable, infinite, glorious power. How great is our God! All that is exists because of God. He is the origin. Everything that has being, whether material or immaterial, derives its being from Him. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Plants and water and stars and animals and, and music, love and morality and reason and science derive from Him, from His nature. They exist by Him. Even math. Yes, even math drives its nature from God. I know you were thinking that math was a product of the fall. Jason and I would say, no. All of it comes from God. Which means that in order for us to rightly understand, utilize and manipulate God's creation. We must view these things in light of God himself. God, well, God and his act of creating the universe are foundational in rightly understanding everything. It's the basis, the true basis of all education. The next 33 verses of Genesis describe the Toledoth, or birthings, of the heavens and the earth, providing many additional details of God's creative act over the span of six days, as Dr. Lyle explained last week. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't address what else these verses either directly or indirectly communicate about God. Besides this amazing, I mean, the, the power's big enough, right? This amazing, mind-blowing, incomprehensible power that God created. But there's other attributes, characteristics of God that are revealed here as well. One of them, God is. Yep, God is. He has the power of being within himself. We see here that before anything else existed, before anything else had being, God existed in a state of pure self-existence. He is pure being. God is the uncaused cause, the uncreated creator. He alone can create beings because he alone has the power of being. He is the source of all being the one who originated everything and who sustains everything 
now. We also see that God is timeless and eternal. We see that he was already self-existently there at the beginning of time. There was never a time when God was not. But God was when time was not. Wrap your head around that one. He was, is, and always will be. God is also a volitional being. God here decides to create. His act shows intent, the ability of choice and determination. God is a moral being. He declares his creation good seven times here. God's character is the standard of righteousness. God is creative. Look at the vast array and detailed complexity of creation itself. He takes that which is not and creates something out of it from his creativity that is amazing. And God is rational and intelligent. Look at all the information contained in each and every particle of creation. Look at how creation is upheld, maintained through his direction and his decree. Further, we see his intelligence by God speaking. He has a language and uses language intelligently. Ah! Somebody said this morning, God is holy. That was David. Holy, holy, holy. That's our God. And these things are just the tip of the iceberg. Behold your God. Point number two. God created us specially in his image. God created us specially in his image. On the sixth day, at the climax of his creation, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So you'll notice that the creation of man is set apart and special here. It's different. God uniquely creates man in his own image. None of the rest of creation is said to be endowed with this uniquely special characteristic. It's only humankind that God created in his own image and after his own likeness. Now I want you to notice that these verses refer to both male and female. They're both created in the image of God. He calls them man or mankind, but they're both male and female, are man, are mankind. There isn't a greater or a lesser here. They are equally created and endowed with that same image. So, it begs the question, what then 
is the image of God. What does it mean that man was made in the image of God and after his likeness? Anybody care to know that? I think it's important, right, if we're created in his image. And how does this set us apart from the rest of creation? And what do we learn about the worth and dignity of human beings from this truth? Well, both the Hebrew words for image and likeness refer to something that is similar but not identical to the thing it represents or is an image of. Similar to but not identical to the thing that it represents or is an image of. Thus, to be made in the image of God means that we share some similar characteristics with God. Ha! <laughs> Dang! That's cool, isn't it? This truth of being similar but not identical to, to God seems, well, pretty obvious, right? Because there's a lot of things we are not like God in, huh? Anybody say, uh-huh? Yeah. We're creatures. He's the creator. We're finite. He's infinite. We're contingent. He's self-sufficient and self-existent. We're constrained by time and space, and he's omnipresent. You guys ever try to create an earth? You ever try to create anything out of nothing? Yet there are some characteristics of God that he could and did share with us. Humans like God are, are rational. Not irrational. Well, we're irrational sometimes too, but we're rational creatures. We're able to reason about things like foundational questions. You ever see an animal sitting in the corner going, what is my meaning of life? No, we're able to reason about things like that, about the meaning of life, about our origins, about all of these things. Humans like God are moral beings. We believe that certain things are good and bad and behaviors are right and wrong. We all possess some kind of innate sense of morality. We also, like God, are volitional beings. We're able to make decisions. We have the capability of choice and determination. And like God, we're creative. Not that we can create something out of nothing, but that we can transform God's creation into other things, matter into different things. We can make art like the Mona Lisa, music like Adagio for strings. Now, one of the elders says, I don't know what that is. And then Wolf said, oh, you got to know what that is. So if you haven't heard Adagio for strings, go home and listen to it. And of course, movies like, amen, brothers and sisters. Yes. We did get to go see it in the theater again last week. Yes, all, all three of them too. Yeah. And humans like God are personal and relational. We're able to relate to, to interact with, and yes, love others. I want you to notice the grammar in this passage. The one and only God says here, let us make man. Us is a plural pronoun. In our image, after our likeness, our is a plural pronoun. 
God is here speaking to or with others. So, who is the us and who is the our? Well, from the rest of the Bible, we understand that they are God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, dialoguing with one another. From the very beginning, we see that God is also eternally personal and relational. The three persons of the Godhead interacting, communicating, communing, loving one another from all of eternity. And he has specially, uniquely endowed us with that ability as well. He's given us all of these characteristics. In the creation of man, God revealed himself in a unique way. By making the creation of man, God revealed himself in a unique way. By making something that was a kind of mirror image of himself. And it is from this image that we derive our worth, our dignity, and our rights. Since you're created in the image of God, your tremendous worth is rooted in that image that is imprinted upon and intrinsic to you. Since you're created in the image of God. Get this, people. Hold it. Since you're created in the image of God, your tremendous worth is rooted in God's image that is imprinted upon and intrinsic to you. Apart from this truth, where can mankind find worth? Where? That was essentially the question that I was asking that evening. This individual believed that human beings have inherent dignity and worth, and that that's what makes injustice and suffering bad. But they were doubting the very root of that dignity by doubting the truth of Scripture. So I asked where they got the idea from. Well, human beings can't endow themselves with intrinsic dignity because then it's not intrinsic. Neither is it objective because it's just their subjective opinion about themselves and other human beings. It's then just sentiment. Intrinsic value cannot be self-imparted. So did the idea come from another religious text or, or perhaps a, a national document? How many of you guys have been to Washington, D.C.? Jason, you can't raise your hand. It's an amazing place, isn't it? There are so many monuments and museums and, and memorials that even if you took multiple trips to D.C., you wouldn't have to visit the same one twice. Well, there is one place that Jen and I have said, we're going to go there every time we go to Washington, D.C. It's the, the National Archives. It's there that you can see with your own eyes the Constitution, 
Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence. That's cool. It's truly magical looking at those documents. I remember first time standing there and just over the document looking at it and looking at it and trying to get this image stuck in my head. And I sat there until the security guards like, move along, move along. So we went around and I came back. <laughs> Got to get it in my mind. Yes, so cool. Well, the opening line of the second paragraph of that document reads, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. So the, according to the writers of the Declaration of Independence, it's not the document that endows men with equal dignity and rights, is it? It's the creator. There's a document called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a document that was crafted by the United Nations. Whoa, that's bigger than America, huh? It was in response to the horrors of World War II. And in that document, they recognized the inherent dignity and equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family. But it only recognizes that all human beings have inherent dignity. It doesn't give that dignity. How could it? How could any humanly crafted document or organization endow anyone with inherent dignity? It can't. They can't. People either have it inherently or they don't. Doesn't matter what any institution or document or declaration says, it's either in our nature or it's not. Hmm. So, what about other worldviews? Can they account for intrinsic human dignity? Ones like naturalistic evolution? If evolution is true, folks, can man have inherent dignity? Everybody say, no. That was pitiful. Everybody say, no. Thank you. They can't have any more dignity than anything else. We are as valuable as rocks. Pond scum, it's a good game. Bile. And anything else, because it's all a product of evolution. If human beings are the undesigned, unintended product of impersonal, unintelligent, natural forces, then how could they possibly have any dignity at all? They can't. Hmm. Nor will you find justification for human dignity and rights in the teachings of any other religious systems. Not Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, you name it. One and only one worldview can account for and consistently justify the equal inherent dignity of all people. Our dignity and worth are rooted in the image of God that is imprinted upon and intrinsic to every human being because that is how God made us. 
He created us that way. And though it has been seriously marred because of Adam's and our sin, this image cannot be destroyed. And therefore, all people everywhere and always retain it and therefore retain equal and intrinsic dignity. Which brings us to our third point. God created us to reflect his image. Have you ever seen an object reflecting the brightness of the sun? Back in 21, when Jen and I were heading to my early morning cardiac rehab appointments, I loved watching the sun rise as we were driving there. Now, we were actually driving west, and the sun was rising behind us. But what was cool was the sun would begin, and it would hit the very tippy top of Pike's Peak, and it would start moving down the mountain, and it was really cool. And on its way down, what was really interesting was it would all of a sudden, you'd see these little points of light start shining back at you. Big, bright points of light on the mountain. What was going on? Well, there's people's houses on the hillside there. And as the sun hit the windows, the windows would reflect the sun's brilliance directly back at us. So this is super cool. We're still in the the shadow of the curvature of the earth. We're in darkness, and there are these lights on the mountain shining directly at us, reflecting the brilliance of the sun. There is another facet of an image. It doesn't just have characteristics of what it's reflecting. Its purpose is to reflect that thing. That's a verb. As, as John Piper says, images are created to image. Woo, that's a profound one, isn't it? If you create an image, if you draw a picture or make a sculpture of someone, you do it to display something about that someone. God created us in his image so that we would display or reflect or communicate who he is, how great he is, and what he is like. The image of God in man not only involves what man is, but also what he does. This is the functional aspect of bearing God's image. This functional aspect of the image of God is clearly seen in verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish, the birds, the livestock, over all the earth and over everything that creeps on the earth. There's the what man does facet of this image. The concept of man as the image of God communicates that man is to mirror and to represent God himself. As a mirror reflects, so man should reflect God. As those windows reflected the brilliance of the sun, so we were made to reflect the brilliance of God. 
being created in the image of God is your purpose. Being created in the image of God is your purpose. It's what you were made for. Since you're created in the image of God, not only is your worth rooted in His image, but your purpose is to reflect that image. It's why we exist. So why did God create man in His own image? To image forth, to reflect the character and characteristics of God through, how can I do that? How is that possible? Oh, you know what? I gave you a bunch of intrinsic qualities so that you can. Whoa, really? Yeah. You can display him through exercising those qualities and faculties he has given you. This functional aspect of God in man is further expanded upon in verses 28 through 31. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The way we reflect God's image is through our relationship, our interaction with the rest of his creation. In the passage we just read, we see that God has placed into mankind or mankind into a threefold relationship to do this. The relationship of man with his fellow men. Be fruitful and multiply and Fill the earth. There are to be many image bearers, is what it's saying. And we are to interact with them as fellow image bearers. This is community. Like the community within the Trinity. We're to reflect God to our fellow man, Christ to our community. Yeah, next week... Mike will give us a bunch more detail on this as we go into Genesis chapter 2. So I will leave it at that. Another relationship is man with nature. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Most of the instruction for doing this is actually contained right here. This is why we needed to grasp point number one, that God created everything. Because now he says, you're to have dominion over it. It's all God's creation, and he has designed it for us and then has delegated to us 
It's stewardship for his glory and the good of others. The management, the maintenance, the development of it was to be done, guess how? By incorporating all of those cool things that he endowed us with. Wow, that's pretty cool. Through the exercise of our intrinsic faculties, we were to develop agriculture and horticulture, science, technology, music, and art. This is why education is imperative and why we ought to be continually seeking to learn more. Education's a good thing. Third relationship is man with God. It's implicit here. We were created and designed by God with these qualities and faculties to live in a way, to think and feel and speak and act in a way that displays the brightness, the radiance, the goodness, the glory of God. Therefore, our primary relationship as God's image bearers is with God himself. As Anthony Hokema says, to be a human being is to be directed toward God. Man is a creature who owes his existence to God, is completely dependent on God, and is primarily responsible to God. This is his or her first and most important relationship. All of man's other relationships are to be seen as dominated and regulated by this one. Hmm. In other words, our relationship with everyone and everything is to be governed by our relationship with God. We begin with our relationship with God in Christ. And from that, we move to our relationship with community. Christ to community. God first, Christ first. Community comes from that relationship with God and Christ. Do you see the design of God here? Human beings were created to function in certain ways. We were created to worship God, to love our neighbors, and to rule over nature. Each one of these relationships is as important as the others because they're inexorably linked. Our relationship to our fellow man is an expression of our relationship with God. And our relationship with the rest of creation, with nature, is an expression of the way that we love God and our neighbors. You and I and everyone are created in God's image to reflect that image by stewarding creation to love and worship Him and to love and care for others. I want to return to that window on the mountainside reflecting the sun for just a moment. Something that we, have you guys seen that? You ever look at it and you see those windows reflecting? It's pretty cool, huh? Next time you're driving, you're going to see it, you're going to go, oh, I'm created in the image of God. Something that we don't often think about is that part of the glory 
that part of the glory of reflecting the brightness of the sun is that it's receiving the glorious brilliance and warmth of the sun first. If you were standing on the other side of that window, you'd be warmer, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd see that brilliance hitting you and feel the warmth filling you. It receives glory in reflecting glory. There's the design. We image God because it's our greatest pleasure that we could ever have. You receive the glory, the brilliance, the radiance of God shining upon you. You reflect it. That's pleasure. That's delight. That's goodness. The more we reflect the glory of God, the higher our satisfaction in this life will be. This was the original design and intent of God for us. Hallelujah. There's a problem, isn't there? Just a little bit of a problem. The image we have now is incredibly distorted. Those things that I mentioned at the very beginning, a picture of it. And we'll see when we get to chapter 3 that Adam decided to use his volition to sin against God. And that sin not only corrupted and defaced God's image in him, but it has disfigured that image in every one of us. Every one of us. It has marred our intrinsic image, corrupted our functional image, and tarnished our reflection. So much so that we don't even know what it looks like to live out the image of God in form or function anymore, huh? And though we see that we're created to reflect God's image here in the passage, these verses don't tell us what it's supposed to look like in everyday life. So what's the image of God properly reflected supposed to look like? The answer? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. If you're to know what it's like to live out the image of God, then we must look at him who is the very manifestation of God. As Paul tells us, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus was not created in the image of God. He is the image of God. That's a huge difference. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We must look at the life and character of Jesus Christ who is the radiance, the very radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He's our example. Now, any of you who are as old as I am will remember this vividly. Do you remember WWJD? What would Jesus do? Any of you ever 
have the wristbands, T-shirts, stickers, put it on your car. It was huge. Well, it eventually fell into obscurity because of the objection that, well, Jesus was God, and I'm not God. Jesus was God's servant, and he came to die on a cross, and I'm not going to go die on a cross. That's not my calling. And so it fell kind of into obscurity. But that wasn't the point of the saying, folks. The phrase was intended as an invitation to examine the character of Jesus behind the deeds. I mean, obviously, Jesus' calling was different from our calling. His culture was different from our culture. But the summons wasn't about a where or even a what. It was about looking at the who, the character of Jesus as the image of God and attempting to be conformed to that image. And that is what we as believers are now supposed to be striving for. Romans 8, 29, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. To what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. That's what sanctification is. It's the process of being transformed into the same image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. There's no instantaneous sanctification, is there? It's this process from one degree of glory to another of being conformed into the image of Christ. This is the gradual restoration of the image of God in us. Begins salvation cannot be transformed or conformed to the image of Christ without first trusting in Him as your Lord and Savior. And now that you believe this is the will of God for you and the design of God for you, it's not about where you want to go or what you want to be but about who God wants you to be no matter where you are or what you do. It's about living, reflecting God, reflecting Jesus through the intrinsic image that is being renewed in you day by day. So what would Jesus do? We do need to ask the question. You can have the bumper sticker and the t-shirt and the wristband. It's okay. If somebody judges you for it, you should say, you're not reflecting the image of Jesus. (laughs) What did Jesus do? What did he do as the image of God? Well, it's going to be rather simple simplistic, straightforward for y'all. 
the life and character of Christ can be summed up in a single verse in the Bible. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's not that hard. It's hard. But it's easy, at least to understand. Jesus loved God and people with his all. You know, I was talking about that hard thing. Jenna and I were watching a video today, or the other day, and a person said, it's kind of like a diet. You know what to do. It's pretty simple and straightforward, but it's hard to do, isn't it? It's as simple and straightforward. This is what it looks like to reflect God's image. Love God with your all, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. These two principles are how we realize the image of God most fully within us. Toward God, toward others, and in creation. There are a million and one ways to do this. Based upon the where and the what. Based upon the circumstances that you find yourself. But you can always, always, every single time, love God and love people no matter where you are. No matter where you are. I began by asking you about foundational questions. As we've seen, this truth of man being created in the image of God from Genesis 1 is foundational in understanding mankind's being, his worth, his dignity, design, and purpose. Therefore, it creates the foundational understanding of the answers regarding these questions about meaning, about gender and gender issues, gender identity, abortion, right to life, racism, prejudice, human rights, injustice, and suffering. Some time ago, Jen and I were doing some shopping at Costco when I saw a man pulling a cart down the aisle coming toward us. One of those little fabric carts, you know, that breaks out with the little wheels on it. And uh, it looked like there was a person in it. Didn't think much about it. People pull their kids in those little things all the time, right? <clears throat> so as we got closer and closer, I realized that it wasn't a child that he was pulling in that little wagon, but a severely handicapped woman, probably in her late 20s, woman who had no arms or legs. You know what I did? I'm ashamed to say that was my first reaction, to avert my gaze and pretend like she didn't exist. Because what do you do? When you come across somebody like that. At that moment, I was rejecting both the fundamental 
image of God in her and the functional image of God in myself. Praise God for the Holy Spirit. So what are you doing? Here is this person created in the very image of God who probably receives the same reaction from just about everyone she ever crosses paths with. People uncomfortably seeing her and then turning away and pretending that she doesn't exist. How dehumanized must this woman feel? Well, as we turn to go up the next aisle, they were heading in the same direction, and so they came down the aisle toward us again. And so this time, when they drew near, I stopped. And I got down to her level where we could see face to face. I looked her in the eyes and I said, You are beautiful. You are beautiful in God's eyes. He loves you. Why are people valuable? Why are all people valuable? Because they're created in the image of God. Every one of them. Each and every person bears his likeness and is beautiful and has equal dignity and equal worth and equal purpose because they bear his image. And he has given you and I abundant, abundant, abundant opportunity to love him by rightly reflecting that image through loving others and treating them like fellow image bearers. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you that you have endowed us with so many gifts and faculties that reflect you. God, I pray that each and every person in here would be a clearer reflection of you each day, that you would conform us to the image of Christ, that we would desire to show forth God, to reflect God, to represent God to the people around us, no matter who they are, no matter what they're like, that when they look at us, they would see the reflection of Jesus. May it be so to your glory, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.